0: Amen. Church, we remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning as we continue in our study of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 8 will be in 22 through 39. God's word says this, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and, they were, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. And then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him. And he said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had been, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and it was kept under guard and bond with chains and shackles, but he broke the bonds to be driven and by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let him enter these so he gave them permission then the demon came out of the man the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and drowned And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told in the city and in the country. And then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those that had seen it told them how the demon possessed man had been healed. And then all the people in the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so he got in the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Church, you may be seated. Well, band, thank you all so much. Uh, Great job. It's always great to be in God's Word, to worship together as God's people. And uh, if you're new with us, I want to say welcome. So glad that you've chosen to come worship here at Risen. We are walking our way verse by verse through uh, Luke's Gospel. And so we are in chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we have a few under the seats. There's little racks in there. If you don't own a copy of the Scriptures, we would love to give you a copy. We've got some Bibles back in the welcome table. We would love for you to own And have a copy of God's Word that you can mark up. Uh, We believe it is uh, our most treasured possession, the literal words of God that is given to us and for us. And so uh, what we've seen thus far in our study in Luke's Gospel is that Luke, uh, if you remember the, the author of this, so Luke gives us two books. He gives us Luke's gospel and he gives us Acts. So it's, it's his, uh, his gospel account and then the birth of the church. And so here we're, we're given this picture and window and insight into the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, and Luke is a historian. He's a doctor. And so Luke is of, uh, he, he's so careful to give all these important details because uh, in the very beginning, he tells us why he wrote this book is because he wants to give us an orderly account of everything uh, that, that's happened uh, to Christ. And so he, he's ordering these events that are given to us that we would know and see and understand who Jesus is and what he is all about. And we can tell from the way that he writes the gospel that he's interviewed all these eyewitnesses, that he's compared the sources. And so Luke is not a man who's just concerned with maybe his, um, his presuppositions or his, his opinions. He is gathering data and facts, and, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has given to us this careful consideration of the life of Christ, It's really remarkable. And so we get all these wonderful details in Luke's gospel that oftentimes aren't found in other gospels because he's concerned uh, as he's writing this, as he's writing to a friend that maybe is a new believer or not a believer, that this person would see and know who Jesus is. And so when we encounter it, we're given the truth of who God is through Christ that we would know and believe and trust that all that has transpired that he's written down is true and is for our good and that it actually happened. And so as we've journeyed through, we see that Jesus went around preaching in the countryside of Galilee, northern Israel. And then we're seeing that he's doing more than just teach and more than just preach. He's interacting with people. He's, he's healing. These miracle things have begun to happen as we've seen, as we've journeyed through. And we'll continue to see that happen. And then last week, Dr. Baker was preaching, did a great job. And one of the main concerns that Jesus is giving to his disciples and giving to all these people who are pressing in on him and and longing to hear from him is not just that we would just hear the words and teachings of Jesus. If you remember last week, verse 21, it was so important, but that we would actually not just listen, but we would do what this Savior tells us that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, as James says, that we would be doers of the word. We would do what he says, that we would be careful to listen. So he gives us all these listening stories from last week at the beginning of chapter eight. And he tells us a parable talking about how it's dangerous if we just become accustomed to taking in large segments of God's truth and somehow not letting it affect our lives that we would hear all the goodness of who God is, all the truths in our context of who Christ is and what he's done for us and how he's saved us and what he's rescued us from and that we would leave here and it doesn't make any inroads into our actual obedience in our life throughout the week. Um, He warns us against that. Jesus says, be careful how you listen that it would actually produce action in our lives. The Puritans had a word for this. They had a word for people that would just love to listen to God's word, but not actually do anything with it. Uh, They called them uh, sermon tasters. Isn't that interesting? So the Puritans said, oh, there's this group of people, they're just sermon tasters. They would go around from town to town and try to find the best preachers to listen to, and they would go listen to the very best preachers and taste this sermon and this sermon and that sermon, and then they would all talk and discuss uh, who was better at it praise the Lord, we've all outgrown that, right? I mean, the Puritans were dealing with this. Jesus is talking about it then. Be careful that you don't just take it in and take it in and listen and listen, and you don't let it impact your actual life. That was last week. Um, and as we've journeyed through, we've seen that Jesus claims to be our Savior. He claims to be Lord. He's come to change our lives so that we would have fellowship with him and that by his goodness and grace in our lives, we would be able to put his words into practice. Now, the second half of Luke chapter 8, which we won't quite finish today, but we've gotten, we'll get through a lot, um, gives us... Uh, a pivotal story on the boat, a very familiar one that we're all—if you've grown up the church—you remember this one. And then, in the rest of Chapter Eight, we're given three healing stories, which we'll get to just one of them. So, Chapter Eight—if you want to outline Chapter Eight—a good sort of way of thinking about it is: you have three hearing stories. Jesus talks about how you hear the word. You have a boat. And then you have three healing stories. So hearing stories, boat, and healing stories. So three boat, and then three, right? And so the first part, he calls his disciples to listen to him carefully. And here in the latter half of Luke chapter eight, as Luke is masterfully writing this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are called as his disciples to watch the Lord Jesus closely, to follow him. And what we're going to find as we watch him and as we see him interact is that Jesus is Lord of the natural world. Jesus is Lord of the natural world. I'm going to read it again, the boat story starting in verse 22. One day, he's talking about he, Jesus, got into the boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out And as they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. And then the the disciples woke Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this that commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. So here in the story, Jesus, he is going from the Jewish west side of the Sea of Galilee And then he's going over to a much less densely populated area on the Gentile side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's sailing across the Sea of Galilee from the Jewish side to the Gentile side. Jesus gets into the boat, verse 23, and then he falls asleep. He takes a nap, right? And I think this is in here, uh, this is pivotal. This is in here on purpose for us. Why Why did he fall asleep? Well, he was tired. Jesus got tired. I th- and you're like, well, of course, he fell asleep. What's the big deal here? But it's important for us to, to read this and let this settle into us because it's important for us as Christians, as followers of Christ, to understand that Jesus, yes, got tired. He is not Superman without the cape. He is fully human and fully God. He got tired and he fell asleep. I also think uh, there's part of him falling asleep that he did it deliberately, maybe for another reason, that he deliberately fell asleep in the front of the boat. And I think Jesus wanted exactly the situation that happened because he's also fully man and he's fully God. And while he slept, we see in verse 23, this great violent storm sort of all of a sudden emerges. They wouldn't have set sail into the storm, so the, the seas looked clear. And this violent storm sort of sweeps up onto the Sea of Galilee in verse 24. And they, they go and wake Jesus up because all the disciples are panicking because the wind is going to capsize the boats and water is splashing into the boats. And the storm almost takes them down and Jesus gets up from his nap and with his words rebukes the storm and the storm subsides. It stills, it stops. Now remember, the guys that he's on this boat with are professional fishermen. They've seen it all. So for them to get freaked out to be on a boat in a storm must have been some kind of storm. These aren't like, uh, it's not like me getting on a boat, and all of a sudden it just rocks a little bit. I'm like, ah, I'm freaking out, right? These guys are seasoned, sea-legged fishermen, right? If you've ever been deep-sea fishing... Uh, we fall down all the time when, the, when a big wave comes, and the, like the first mates and the captains, they, it's, it's like nothing's going on, right? They're, I don't understand how they're standing up. And one time I went, a guy could jump on the edge of the boat in these big swalls, and he's like just, it's like he's surfing. It's like, how are you not falling down? These are seasoned fishermen. And so for them to make a big deal and to be frightened of the storm, it must have been some kind of storm, life-threatening. They were afraid they were going to die. It was more than just a common uh, wave. There was something going on here that shocked them when the words of Christ went out and this violent storm suddenly stopped right before their eyes. And they began to wonder and they began to be filled with fear and they thought, this teacher, this rabbi is God. So there was something amazing about the abruptness of that storm stopping that seized these fishermen and made them stop and made them wonder, who is this? And then Jesus stands up in verse 25 and he says, where is your faith? Um, I don't think he, and I don't think he was necessarily rebuking them like, hey, where's your faith? Like, what are you doing here? I can't believe you're feeling this way. It wouldn't... It's like you're with me. You're, you should be. You should be fine. I don't think he's like calling them out and, and and belittling them because they they didn't get it in the moment. I don't think it was like, hey, you should just believe in the power of positive thinking, and you shouldn't get afraid when a violent storm almost capsizes the boat and kills all of us. I don't. I don't think he's getting at that point. I think it's different than that. I think he's asking them, where is your faith? In a sense of. What, is, what do you believe about me? Who do you think I am? What is your perception of me? Why are you surprised by what I've done? Why are you so shocked that my words ceased the waters and the waves? Why are you, why are you surprised that the natural world listens to my voice and obeys it? I think that's what he's getting at here. Not like, hey, you should do better next time when a bad thing happens in your life. I think he's getting at, what do you believe about me? They are, after all, his disciples, and he's calling them to, but do you really know who I am? Do you really know what I've come to do? So Jesus here, he's, he's, he's rerouting, he's reshaping uh, their understanding of who he is, that Jesus is the object of their faith. He is the one in whom they can trust. He is the one in whom the wind and the waves obey. And they, that, that, that wouldn't be surprising to them when it happens. And look at what they do, verse 25. In fear and amazement, they asked one another. The boat probably wasn't very big. They were kind of like, let's go over here and have a chat, right? who is this? Who is this that commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And I think that is the question and that is the entire point of this whole chapter. If you want to underline that, if you want to uh, draw a box around this, that question of who is this Jesus? Who is this one? He commands even the wind and the water and they obey him. They just seen this miracle. They're about to see Jesus um, do many more miracles and Jesus was answering that question for them by the miracle that he just did. So Jesus is building on his identity. They ask the question, who is this Jesus? And he says, the one in whom the wind and the waves obey my voice. He's showcasing and displaying and pressing in his identity. And what is that identity? Only God can do that. Only God can speak and the natural world listens and obeys. See, I think it was Jesus' plan to sleep in the middle of that storm, to get them to fear, so that they would ask that very question and then he would give this amazing sign and they, his disciples, on the front end of his earthly ministry would be forced to the point of clarity in their own mind and in their own hearts, who is this Jesus? He's the one in whom the wind and the waves obey. And only God can do that. Jesus' answer by his actions in that story, in that boat, are in fact, and Luke does not want us to miss it, that he is God incarnate. He is the son of God. Now, um, how do we know that? Because only God himself can do the things that jesus just did we can go to many 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 old testament passages that would speak about this about god the father's ability to control the natural world isaiah 51 it won't be on the screen you don't have to turn there i'm just going to read a quick little bit of it is one of these passages that says this awake awake put on strength O arm of the lord awake as in days of old the generations of long ago Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great depth, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over, talking of the Exodus, and the ransomed or redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing? Only God could have the power to split the waters, to stop the waters, to speak, and the natural world would listen and obey and do what it normally doesn't do. And so Jesus acting in this way, Jesus performing this amazing feat in that boat is in fact him saying, I am God. Only God can do this. To be the Lord of the wind and the waves in the Old Testament is only a place and position that God himself can hold because he is the Lord of creation. The Exodus speaks of this, and many, many Old Testament scriptures speak of this, that God is the Lord, that his words go forth and things happen. And Jesus is showing himself here as his disciples would have remembered all of these stories of God delivering his people out of these dangerous waters where death was impairing and impending and God saved them through, the, through shaping the natural world. Here, Christ himself is doing the very same thing and declaring himself to be Lord of the natural world. He's Lord of the wind and the waves. Um, now, if you're here and you're not a Christian... Maybe a friend brought you or maybe you've been exploring Christianity. You've been trying to understand more of um, who Christ is and what's the church all about. I want you to, I want you not to rely on a preacher or a podcaster or don't be a sermon taster like the Puritans would say. Go to the word of God and let the Bible explain to you exactly who Christ is and what he claims to be and what he does because he's showing us right here who he is and what he, uh, and what he is and what he's capable of and what he's come to do. This is Jesus' presentation of himself as he's beginning his ministry. And so if you are not a Christian, come to the word of God and let God's word impact and change your hearts and mind about who he is. Don't come with all your presuppositions, what you th- might think about him. Let Jesus speak for himself. Let the word of God speak for itself. It's not some formulation of... Um, centuries later orthodoxy where they sort of figured this all out and tried to decide that Jesus was divine, no. The evidence here as Luke is recording it as Luke is carefully, masterfully putting it all down through all these eyewitnesses, want us to come to the conclusion of who Christ is as we read these pages, that he is the uniquely divine son of God in the flesh, Jesus, Lord over the natural world. And so miracles like this were meant to be signposts and pointers to his divinity, And then when we grasp that, like the disciples did in that boat, when we're forced to reckon with who is this Jesus, that even the wind and the waves obey him, we too are meant to grapple and come to that moment of clarity. That you have to make a decision. He's not just some good teacher. He's not just some rabbi. He's not just, oh, he's a good teacher and a good guy and I sort of like some of what he says. You either believe that he is the unique divine son of God or he is a lunatic. And Luke is meaning for us to drive to that point of clarity in our hearts and in our minds. One more thing in the boat story. The very beginning, verse 22, it says... That the disciples got into the boat, and so how could you tell if you were a disciple of the Lord Jesus back then? Well, just real simply, you were with Him. When He moved, they moved. Where He went, they went. That's what a disciple is. If you are a disciple of Christ, if you are a Christian here, it means you are a disciple. That means you are a follower of Jesus. You follow his teaching. You follow where he leads. You follow where he goes. And you put into action the things that he does. It's not just uh, nice little life hacks that you sort of pack away and you kind of do your own thing. No, you go where the Messiah and the Lord goes. And you do what the Messiah teaches us to do. And I pray as a congregation that we would be a people centered on Christ. Christ. that we would be Christ-centered in our prayers that we would be Christ-centered and exalting in our preaching of the scriptures that we would be Christ-centered and exalting of Christ in our singing like we just had moments ago because he has revealed himself to be exactly who he says he was, the Lord of the natural world. But we also see, as we continue in chapter eight, the rest of this story is that Jesus reveals himself to be the Lord of the spiritual realm. So here in chapter eight, he is Lord of the creation, he is Lord of the natural world, and he's Lord of the unseen world. The spiritual world. These stories are back-to-back. I'm going to read it again, so just to uh, refresh our minds. And then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, in which is opposite of Galilee, verse 26 through 39. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him and it was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank. Onto the lake and drowned. I'll stop there. And so what we see here is that Jesus is doing in these two back-to-back stories is he's giving us a visual definition of the Messiah, of who he is as Messiah. That those who come to Christ by faith that receive him as Savior, like the sermon he first preached earlier in Luke, He has, in fact, set captives free. The dead are raised. Demons are driven out. He is is doing all the things he said that he would fulfill in their hearing when he opened the scroll at the beginning of his ministry and declared that he would do these things. He's saying, I am who I say that I am. And then we find here in verse 27, he was met right after this amazing, miraculous stilling of the the waters. They get across to the other side, and he uh, steps foot on dry ground to a very interesting welcoming committee, right? Now, uh, the great old uh, preacher, Jonathan Edwards, in his commentary suggested that perhaps these demons were sort of watching Jesus come over on the boat from within this man. And uh, Edwards suggests that maybe that they uh, had raised the storm to prevent Jesus from getting over there to try to kill him. It's far-fetched, but it's an interesting aside, right? Uh, I don't think that's really how it went because it would give the demons too much credit over the natural created order. Um, but nevertheless, he steps foot and hears this man possessed by all these demons or uh, has all these demons within him. And, it's, and Jesus is immediately recognized by this man. There wasn't like a question and answer of who is this. Jesus was immediately recognized as the son of the most high God. The unseen world, the demons that were uh, in this man, knew immediately, unlike the disciples in the boat, who this was. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had to reveal himself and tell them, and they had to, he had to get through some of their hardened hearts and their understanding. The unseen world sees Jesus, and they know exactly and immediately who he is. The son of the most high God. Um. And notice Jesus doesn't silence these evil spirits. If you remember, as we've gone through, oftentimes uh, when Jesus was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, when people would say who he was, he would often tell them to be quiet and go tell no one. Here, the demon declares exactly who he is, that he is the son of the most high God, and he doesn't tell him to hush or be quiet. He just lets this out. Now, why is that? Because now he's in a Gentile area. He sailed across from the Jewish population into a Gentile population where they had no preconceived sort of understanding of what the Messiah would be and who the Messiah would be, so there was no reason to stay quiet about it. They could let news spread that the Messiah, even of the Gentiles, has come. Jesus. So Jesus receives these exalted titles on this side, but not early in his ministry on the other side of the sea. As we'll see... More as we journey through Luke's gospel when he goes back across the lake. But here, he lets him go on. And it says in verse 28, we find this question. Um, what do you want with me, Jesus? And so th- they recognize him immediately, and they know that something is about to happen. They know that this is not a casual encounter, There's an intuitive, supernatural, unseen awareness of who Jesus is and what he is capable of. And they blurt out, if I was true to the text, I would scream it, but I don't wanna scare all of you and uh, upset all the children in here. But they are begging Jesus. They're begging Christ not to torture them. Why would these demons assume that Jesus has come to torture them? Well, because Jesus is holy good. And he will not allow this evil in his presence to this one in whom he longs to cure. Unlike you and me, we can kind of see some of these things and pass it by, Jesus cannot. And he, they knew he had the right to judge them. That one day he would judge them finally and fully, returning them to the abyss, the language that's even used here, to torture and judgment. So these demons were torturing this man, verse 29, uh, exercising sort of their uh, dominion over him, so to speak, and says many times it had seized him. So this, this man had uh, a horrible existence with these demons that were um, torturing him. The devil is a cruel taskmaster. Many of us know that all too well with our own sin and folly that so easily entangles us. This man is what we might even consider or call today manic depressive or there's other maybe medical terminology for what this man was experiencing, but we know there's more to that here as the story tells us that there was a serious spiritual problem happening here. And uh, Jesus asks the name. The demon's name was Legion. Now, a Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers in it, so I'm not sure exactly what that means. Were there 6,000 demons? I'm not exactly sure, but we know there's maybe more than one demon that is afflicting this individual. There were many. And uh, out of this whole chapter, um, verse 31 has given me the most pause this week made me reflect as I've been reading and meditating on this chapter uh, and I would never noticed it in this way before and it struck me in a way that I wasn't expecting because I'm familiar with this story but verse 31 that says and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss Um, what is the abyss Well, literally, it's the place of no boundary. It's the place of no bottom. It's the place of no end. It's unending doom, essentially. It's hell. It's the place of no ending, never ending doom, the abyss. Now, think about that. How do they know about the abyss? Well, I assume maybe in some real sense they're familiar with it. Perhaps you could even say that's where they're from. And their loathing and fear of being sent there is not some comical thing that oftentimes we experience uh, in our culture. of when you ask people about their spiritual state, they say kind of tongue-in-cheek, "Well, I want to go to hell where all my friends are. That's where we're going to be having some fun." Uh, these demons do not think of the abyss like that at all. They have fear. They have fear. You see it and hear it in their voice. They have fear about being sent back there, about going there. They don't want to go back. How horrific must it have been to cause even the demons to beg Christ not to be sent back there? Let that sink in. that the demons themselves who have seen it, they're begging Jesus, don't, whatever you do, send me back there. Church, it is not a bad thing for us to consider the horror of the fate that we face outside of Christ. This is not like a let me me scare you into heaven sermon, but here we're faced with it in this text that even the demons shudder at the fact of being sent back to the abyss church, the more aware, the more understanding, the more that we uh, understand what we have been saved from and what we have been saved into the family of God and all the good that God has done for us through Christ, it swells our hearts with gratitude for him. It swells our hearts with love for Jesus. It swells our hearts and minds to want to worship him, knowing what we have been rescued from. Even the demons shudder and beg him not to send him back there. And Christ, our Savior, if you've come to him in faith, he has rescued you. And we see his grace and kindness and mercy to us in Christ that he has loved us so tenderly and so well that he would invite a sinner like me and save even me, the foremost of sinners, that by faith we can escape this place and be with Christ forever. So here in verse 36, the demon-possessed man has been cured. He was healed physically. He's healed mentally. He's healed spiritually. The demons were cast out into the swine uh, and and cast out and drown into the lake. And the word here for healed or cured is the same word that the New Testament uses for saved. This man was saved in every aspect of the word by Christ. And Jesus tells him to return home. Now, (laughs) I was reflecting on this. Here's a man wearing no clothes, wandered among the tombs, was shackled, had so much strength by these demons, he would break free and wander around, being tormented for Lord knows how long. And the kindness and mercy of Christ saves him, rescues him, frees him. He's clothed now at the feet of Christ. We see him at the end of the story. He wants to go with Jesus, but I think in the mercy of Christ, he says, go home. Can you imagine that homecoming, the one who was unclean, the one that couldn't be around his family, couldn't go anywhere. He sends him home. The mercy of Christ saves him and sends him home and not only sends him home, but says, go and tell everyone what God has done for for you. And Luke, by writing this, wants us to engage in this text, wants us to realize what we've been saved from into because of Christ, that we too would just like this man who was afflicted and tortured, just like we were afflicted and tortured in our sin, have been wholly saved by Christ through faith in him and him alone, we can now go and tell those around us all that God has done for us in Christ. So today we see Jesus who is not just Lord of the natural world, he is that, but he is Lord even of the spiritual realm as we see here. He sees through it and he can save wholly. Church, I don't know what you're facing today. Julia did a great job earlier bringing that to light through that song. I don't know what you're walking through, what trial you're walking through. All of us are walking through something right now. But I want to urge you Today, as we've looked at these stories, trust Christ. Trust him. He is worthy to be trusted. He is a worthy guide. He is worthy to be trusted entirely, to put your full weight of your faith and hope in Christ. Cast your life on Jesus. Then, throughout this chapter, Jesus is showing himself to be the savior, to be the healer, to be the restorer, to be the Lord, even of life and death, as we will see next week as we conclude chapter eight. He is kind, and he saves the most unlikely people by self being the foremost. This chapter is filled with three healing stories and life-saving stories of the undeserving. And that's who Christ is. That's what he does. So I would urge you, church, to cling to the words of Christ, cling to the the actions of Christ as we've read and recognize who he is. Believe him, trust him. uh, Repent today of your folly and your sin and run holy to him. Only he can save you to the uttermost, as Hebrews tells us. He is the Lord of the wind and the waves. He is Lord of the supernatural. He is our great Lord and Savior. Let's pray together, church. Father, thank you for sending the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you that his ministry didn't just um, just compose of just stories, but it composed of actions, it composes of, of the truths of all of these realities of who he is, that he is, in fact, Lord of the natural world. He is Lord of the supernatural world. He is our Savior and Lord, and that he can save us completely should we come to him with empty hands of faith. God, I pray for anyone today that doesn't know you. Lord, would they come to Christ? Would they grapple with his words of who he is, of who he claimed himself to be? Would you drive to clarity in someone here today in their hearts and minds? And would you save one even this morning by your mercy and grace? We know the fate we deserve and thanks and praise be to Christ that he has rescued us from it. And Lord, thank you that he rescued us by going to the cross, by being pierced for our transgressions, that he took on and lived a life that we could never live for ourselves and died the death that we deserved, conquering sin and death and rose again on the third day and that those who come to him with empty hands of faith would have life everlasting with him. We thank you for that good news. May we be a people centered on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as revealed to us in your holy and inspired word today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, church, uh, for those are serving communion, if you'll please come forward. We're going to have a a few stations, two here, uh, maybe one or two in the back. Um, I wanted us to end by taking the Lord's Supper and us reflecting on all that Christ has saved us from. So if you are a follower of Jesus... If he has saved you, we invite you to the table today to take of the bread and of the cup. And since we've been in Luke, I'm gonna read Luke's account of this last supper where he instructs us uh, to do this. Luke 22 says, and when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And so when we come to the table this morning, we come in a state of remembrance, the scripture tells us. We remember all that Christ has done for us, remembers what he has saved us from, that he took the sting and the penalty of death in the abyss itself and has instead given to us glory in heaven in community in love and grace and mercy and hope in our time of need. And so, church, if you are a follower of Christ today, or maybe today you have become a follower of Christ, we will rejoice with you in coming to the Lord's table and taking of the body and the blood of the new covenant, remembering all of who Jesus is. Um, Let me pray. And when I say amen, you come as you're ready. You come as you're ready. Lord, we thank you for your body and your blood. We remember you. We give you all praise and honor today we're grateful that you would take an undeserving people like us and you would bestow upon us mercy and love and grace. And so today would our heart's posture be a remembrance of all that you've saved us from, that you've washed us in your blood, that your body was given for us. We love you and trust you in Christ's name, amen. Come as you're ready, church.